Why is it that so many Christians care so little about global warming and taking care of our world? Bad theology is killing our planet. Today on Jesus Never Ran. If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? All right, as always, our sponsor for Jesus Never Ran is Angie Nisco with Rise Nutrition. You can find Angie on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That is Rise with a Z. And click in the show notes and you can get your free wellness profile just for Jesus Never Ran listeners. That's Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition. This past week was Earth Day, April 22nd. This should be a cause that I've always assumed that Christians and the church would be behind 1 million percent. But that's just not the case. Why would that be? That doesn't make any logical sense why this wouldn't be a cause that we are behind so strongly. So let's dig in to some bad theology that's killing our planet. Now for me, when I was growing up, actually creation, nature was a huge part of why I believed in God in the first place. I didn't necessarily need any priest or pastor or youth group leader to tell me about God. I I lived out in the middle of nowhere in the country and just all the beauty that surrounded me just spoke so clearly to divinity and to the divine and what I believe to be the reality of, you know, higher power God being active in our world. And so because this is such a foundational piece for me, it has been really surprising to me that that's not the case for every person who claims to follow Jesus, not even close. And so I was really, really, I don't want to say shocked as much as maybe put off and annoyed by the reality that when I, around college, started engaging with the evangelical church, I just naturally assumed that taking care of our planet would be something that we would be engaged in. Yet, what I found, what I found is that not only was there not a ton of engagement surrounding the topic, but when there were conversations that were happening in the world, whether that was politically or when something would happen in the world, not only were the people I was surrounded with not engaging in a healthy way in that conversation or trying to help, they actually often would take a very different approach to the conversation and approach that would dismiss our need to be taking care of our planet. And let me tell you, this just spun my mind for such a loop because I could not understand. Because my belief, like 
like pretty much every Christ follower, I would assume, believes that God created everything in the world, right? On the first day, on the second day, God breathes everything into being. He says it and then it happens. You know the whole story back in the very beginning of the Bible. So if God indeed did create everything on this planet and then he puts us on the planet, it would seem extremely natural, like just some obvious reality that we as human beings who God also created should, while we're here on this earth, take really good care of it simply because he made it, right? If I make something and I give it to somebody or I sell it to somebody, I'm hoping that they take good care of it. It's not a huge ask. It's just a desire. And so my perspective was always that that would be God's perspective, right? He created it. We should take care of it. So imagine my surprise when not only was this not the case, but there seemed to be like this pushback. Now, I understand that some of it was simply because the Save the Planet initiatives tended to come from more of a liberal side politically, still do to this day. And in general, the evangelical church stands fairly arm in arm, at least for the last number of decades, has stood fairly arm in arm with the conservative side politically. So there's definitely a piece of that. But when we dig into it a little bit further, we can see that it's more than just a political issue. Yes, that's a little piece of it, without a doubt, but I have found that not to be the majority of it. Not at all. I think it's actually the way that we interpret the Bible that has the most to do with our desire or lack of desire in this initiative to take care of our world. I believe that if a belief is good, it must also be helpful. If it's not helpful, it's not good. But not helpful just for a single person, not just helpful for Matt, but helpful for the whole. If a belief is good, it must be helpful for everyone. And not just the whole as in all human beings, but also the whole of all creation. So if a belief is good, it should be helpful for every human being as well as all of creation. And I think that should hold through all the way no matter what. And if we find that that's not the case, then we should definitely question the validity or the goodness of that belief. And bad theology has been one of the most harmful things to the planet and to a lot of things, but to the planet because it can disconnect us from reality. What I mean by that is when we take a theological view of something, when we come to a belief that, say, the Bible says something, then we take that belief and allow that to supersede everything else in our life. This is the problem that we get into with people who are not straight, which affects greatly our LGBTQ community. This is what's gotten us into trouble with women and gender. This is what's gotten us into trouble with politics. We could go on and on and on. And it's certainly what's gotten us in trouble when it comes to taking care of our planet. So if we believe a certain thing, if we come to a belief that the Bible says something, and man, let me tell you, when Christians get a hardcore belief that the Bible says something, they stick to it 
<laughs> so strong. And I don't know if you've ever had any sort of conversation with a Christian person who has like a really strong belief on something they believe the Bible to say. And there's almost no conversation that you can even get them to engage in because they're so stubborn minded around the subject. And I know that <laughs> simply because I was there. I've been there several times in my life. And honestly, there's probably some things right now that I believe so strongly that it'd be very, very difficult. I know there's things right now that I believe so strongly that it'd be very difficult for you to even have a healthy conversation with me because I get so stubborn minded about certain things. So that is what we're going to discuss today in reference to Earth Day in reference to taking care of our planet, in reference to global warming. I will say this. This is not going to be some huge unpacking of biblical theology. We're just going to take two main issues, main situations that seem to enter into this conversation more than any other and take them apart in a very macro way. So not in the details. We're not getting into any Greek words here or anything like that. In a very macro level where if we believe one way, it would seem obvious that we don't actually have to be interested in taking care of the planet. Whereas we believe a different way, it would seem obvious that we should be putting all of our energy into taking care of the planet. So that's the plan. Let's see where it goes. Interestingly enough, what we're going to do to engage in this topic of conversation is the first theological point that we have to look at is found in the very, very beginning of the Bible. So we're going to look at actually the first two chapters of Genesis. So it couldn't be more in the beginning of the Bible. And then the second point that we have to look at actually comes or is actually most noticeable in the very last book of the Bible. So we're going to make an argument for the beginning of the Bible and we're going to make an argument for the very end of the Bible. Although there's certainly content in the middle of those two pieces that would engage this conversation as well. But this is where we find the majority of the problem. And I really think we can boil it down to these two issues. When we're looking at Genesis, one of the important things to understand, and this is something that I did not know early on in my faith journey, is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 two were written by two separate authors. If you read those two chapters and think they're written by a single author, you're going to get confused because they're retelling things and they tell them differently. It makes a lot more sense if you take it through the lens of Genesis 1, written by one author, Genesis 2, written by another author. So we're actually going to start in Genesis 2, and then we're going to backtrack to Genesis 1, but that doesn't mean that we're going back historically. We're not going back chronologically. We're actually just sharing two parts that were shared by two different people about basically the same thing that's going on. I hope that makes sense because it felt like a rambling. So in Genesis 2.15, we are talking about Adam, who is pictured in the story as the first human being created. And as we picture Adam being created by God, what we hear in the book of Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 is that God puts Adam in the garden and says that he puts him there to work it and to take care of it. This has always been a verse that I've always assumed simply means that, hey, God created us. We're put on this planet. We should definitely take care of it. And remember, when 
when you hear me talking about the Bible, I'm not going to talk about it in a literal sense. I'm going to talk about it in a sense that these are writings that people are putting down on paper with an attempt to try to understand the divine, which is a very, very difficult thing for any of us to attempt to do. So I'm not talking that the Bible is literally talking about any of the things that we're discussing today, but they're definitely getting a point across. So Adam is put in the garden to work it and take care of it. If we focus on that, we should be the biggest proponents of taking care of our earth. We should be the ones that are really digging into this climate change issue. But what I have seen is that unfortunately, too many people, too many people of faith have actually taken more weight and put it on a chapter that's in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28 talks about man and woman, Adam and Eve, are supposed to be fruitful and multiply. You remember that passage, right? And then they are supposed to have what is called in the Bible dominion over everything that moves upon this earth. So those take two very different approaches. Wouldn't you agree? In Genesis 2, we've got this picture of humankind being put on this earth to take care of it. In Genesis 1, again, describing the exact same situation, we hear about man and woman, humankind, being put on this earth to rule over and to subdue it. And whichever one of those you put more stake in will certainly determine your care for the world that you live in. If you believe that you are supposed to subdue the earth, don't you think maybe that could be a root cause of some of our really unfortunate farming practices in our country today? These practices where people are trying to subdue the earth in order to make sure that it produces the absolute maximum amount that it possibly can at whatever cost, even if it is ruining the soil that it's coming from, even if it is ruining the actual fruit that comes from those plants or vegetables that comes from those plants, that would be a way to subdue things. Don't you think if you took this approach of subduing the earth that you could justify putting a bunch of livestock in a very, very small area just because it's easier and more cost effective to do that? If I believe that I'm on this earth to subdue it and to rule over it, then my mind takes that and says, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make the most out of what I have. I'm trying to have control over it so that I can get out of it the most I possibly can by doing with it whatever it is that I want. That is an approach that obviously will hinder your ability, my ability to want to do anything that's really all that helpful for this planet. Again, on the other side, Genesis 2.15, God put Adam in the garden to work it and take care of it. When I think of taking care of the earth, when I think of working the earth, this is where my mind goes to places of farming practices that are sustainable, renewable resources, things like that, where we are working with what is there. We are working the land. We are working creation, but we're also taking care of it. We can actually get the land, help the land, I should say, produce wonderfully without doing harmful practices that we're seeing as commonplace in our culture today. 
we can actually get higher quality food in our system, not by subduing it and ruling over it, but by taking care of it and by working it. Of course, that takes some alternative thinking to what we have going on in our world right now, but you can see how this is a theological discrepancy. It's, a, it's two separate verses talking about the exact same thing, and whichever one of those verses you resonate more with will determine in many ways your perspective to how you take care of this earth. So I guess the challenge that I have for you today is simply to contemplate those two verses and figure out which one that you resonate more with. And if you resonate more with the one about subduing and the one about dominion, I think you should ask the question, why? All right, so the first way that bad theology can ruin our planet is if we put too much weight on Genesis 1, through 28, where we're supposed to subdue and have dominion over everything on this earth that moves. That's going to be a problem. That's going to kill our planet. That is bad theology. This next one, and the second of only two that I'm going to talk about today, is the one that I think is the bigger of the two issues. I think most of us and most people who call themselves Christians would look at what I just talked about in Genesis and say, yeah, that makes sense that we should take care of it as opposed to subdue it. There's definitely people who would disagree with that. But I think if we were going to talk about the majority, the majority are going to go and lean harder on I'm going to take care of it versus I'm going to subdue it. Not all, but the majority. This next one, the vast majority of people would fall in an opposite camp and a camp that's very, very detrimental to our world. And we find most of this content in the book of Revelation, although we find it in Daniel, we find it in the Gospels, we find it in the early church. And that is the concept of the second coming of Jesus. This is like a stalwart. This is a foundational piece of so many Christians' belief system. If it's foreign to you, it goes like this. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and then after he rose again, that at some point in the future, he is going to come back again. When he comes back again, depending on what you believe, a number of different things are going to happen, but in very few of those situations and belief systems, is this earth going to remain in its current state? This again is common, and I mean extremely common. It is the majority belief system of every Christian sect in our world, this idea of the second coming. You hear it over and over again in the conversations amongst people who follow Jesus, this idea that Jesus is coming back soon. This is that thing where you see people holding signs up, right? And and when I was in the evangelical church, there was so much conversation about this, and it was used as a pacifying agent in so many ways. Things are going wrong. No worries. Jesus is coming back soon. Tornado just hit part of our country. No worries. Jesus is obviously coming back soon. Going through some extreme hardship and loss in your life, it's going to be okay. Jesus is coming soon. It was just the, it was the constant thing that was used as this pacifying technique to help people through things. And I think 
a lot of people do find that kind of idea helpful. But again, that's not specifically what we're talking about. What we're talking about is specific to taking care of our world. The idea of taking care of the earth and the danger of what's happening in the arena of global warming, it's the long-term effects. No scientists are saying that tomorrow, I won't say no, I have not heard of any scientists saying that tomorrow or in five years or in 10 years, like the earth is just going to burn up and no longer exist. There's certainly some conversation about it becoming irreversible soon. I've definitely heard that scientific conversation happening. But most of the talk surrounding global warming, surrounding the care of our earth, surrounding sustainable farming, most of that conversation is a conversation where we are talking about the future of our planet. And when I say future, I'm talking 10, 20, hundreds, thousands of years into the future, depending on specifically what we're talking about. If I believed that Jesus was coming back and the word that you always hear is soon. So if I believe that Jesus is coming back soon and I think that soon could be tomorrow and I believe that that soon's definitely not going to be longer than a decade or two, then why would I care about an issue with the world that only has a long-term impact? If I think Jesus is coming back in the next 100 years, why would I care all that much about global warming? If I think Jesus is coming back tomorrow, why would I care where I buy my groceries from? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand why this is such an important issue? If we take this approach, we obviously would not worry about taking care of our world. And this, like I already said, is where most of the conversation happens. We're not all that worried about our planet because we think Jesus is coming back soon. The idea of Jesus coming back soon has been around since the early church. It can be traced back a couple of thousand years. So that is definitely something that there's been conversations about from the time Jesus left this earth to now. So I'm not saying that this is some sort of new theology. This is something that's been around for a long time, unlike a lot of other things like the literal interpretation of the Bible, like the atonement theory of the cross. Some of those things are newer theologies. And when we talk about those, we talk about how that's not how it's always been. When we talk about the idea of the second coming of Jesus, this actually is a belief system that has been around for the vast majority of the time since Jesus left this earth, since he died on the cross. So it's not that at all. But the bigger issue is that we take the majority of the conversation around this from the book of Revelation. (laughs) I don't know if you've tried to ever read the book of Revelation, but I would not recommend it. It's a nightmare. It makes zero sense. It's just a crapshoot. There's so much imagery in it. There is so much that's up to interpretation and trying to figure stuff out. And the other reason I wouldn't recommend reading is you just scare the hell out of you. It's, it's, it's just not pleasant reading. If it's a sunny day in the springtime in Wisconsin, do not pick up the book of Revelation. It will not help your joy. So the common belief surrounding the book of Revelation, and when I talk about common, I mean common today. This in particular, I don't mean has always been the way that it's been interpreted. I would argue the exact opposite. 
So the belief that is common in evangelical circles surrounding the book of Revelation is that it is a book about the second coming of Jesus. Now, you can trace back through history and find that that is not always the belief surrounding Revelation. The actual most common viewing historically about the book of Revelation and the most common interpretation of it is that it was a coded letter written to other Christians and churches at the time to help them understand not about the second coming of Jesus, but of the reality of their current situation when it was written, a reality surrounding the political situation about when it was written, a reality surrounding the oppression of people that believed about Jesus when it was written. And all of that language that we in modern times have taken to mean the second coming of Jesus really was a language that was meant to imply things that first century Jewish people would have very much understood as code language for something that was actually happening in the midst of them at the time it was written. And because it's so coded and so strange to read, we have taken that. And because of some of the ways it was written, we have taken that to believe it has something to do with the second coming of Jesus. Even though the Jesus that we know about from the gospel seems totally contradictory to the Jesus that we hear about in Revelation. We somehow think those two go together when they simply do not. If we look at the book of Revelation as a book about the second coming, and I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with people who have told me when they think the second coming of Jesus is happening, and how many times, well, I can tell you how many times they've been wrong every single time because I'm still here. So if we take this viewpoint, it's very detrimental to the idea of taking care of our planet. When I was a pastor, people always wanted to talk about this. I'm just telling you, this is one of those things that Christian people love to talk about. They love to talk about the book of Revelation. They love to talk about things like Mark of the Beast. You've probably heard some of that conversation around the vaccinations that are going on right now. Like it just keeps coming up, right? So when I was pastoring this small community in my city, people would always want to talk about it. And that common Christian question was, what if Jesus comes back today, right? Have you heard that? What if Jesus comes back today? Are you ready? Whenever I would hear that, which was far too often than I'd like to admit, when I would hear that, I would say, how about we ask a better question, which is, what if Jesus doesn't come back for thousands of years? What are you doing today to preserve what you have that's been entrusted to you to make sure that you are taking care of what God has given you for future generations. So let's not ask the question, what if Jesus comes back today? Let's instead ask the question, what if Jesus doesn't come back for thousands of years? Or what if Jesus never comes back? What are we doing today to honor the work that God has created on this planet? And if that's the approach that we take, then... I believe that we will become much more interested and much more engaged in the conversation of global warming and the conversation of taking care of our planet, the conversation of emissions coming from our cars, the conversations of what is going on in our atmosphere, the conversations around sustainable farming, and the conversations about renewable resources. But we'll only do that if we change our thinking about the second coming of Jesus. 
you might be able to tell, but this is a pretty important thing to me because I really believe that the way that we honor creation, the way that we honor one another, honors God, who we all often say is who created all of this. So if the divine has any part in the creation of what we all experience on the day to day, wouldn't it make sense that we honor the divine by taking care and working with and honoring what is in front of us on a day to day basis? I think there's a reason that so many of Jesus's stories had to do with agriculture because they go hand in hand, like humanity and agriculture, humanity and the earth. We work together. This idea of true Christianity is not just about human beings. It's about everything together. It's about our place in the concept of the whole. Again, if a belief system is good, it has to be helpful and not just helpful for one person or just a group of people or not just for human beings, but for all of creation as a whole. So, Some things that I think we can do, and I want to boil this down to the most simplest form. Some of you out here are listening to this and you're amening, you're high-fiving your headphones, which probably looks weird to the people outside of you, but you are with me on this, you are ready engaged, and you're doing great. Others of us, not so much, or we're just trying to figure out how we get started in this conversation. And so I just want to give you, since we're coming into spring here, this is a time when things start getting green, when things start growing. Here are some super duper basic ways that we can engage with the earth in a way that is helpful and I believe honoring to the divine. Number one, again, because it's spring, just grow something. Specifically, grow something that you can eat, but grow anything. You can also just grow something that you get to observe and and be honored by its beauty. So grow something. And it doesn't matter if you're like me and you have some acreage or if you live in a tiny little apartment. You can grow something by starting a garden or you can grow something by just buying a single potted plant. Either way, it's a beautiful thing. So just grow something. That's a great way to engage in creation. And if you pay attention to what's going on while you're growing it, I think you'll also have a greater connection to the divine. Number two, buy local, sustainably grown food, including your meat. There is some horrible, and I mean horribly detrimental to our earth and to creation and to animals, farming techniques that are going on in our world right now. We need to avoid those, and the way that we avoid them is by making sure that we know where our food comes from. One of the best ways that you can do this is go to your local farmer's market. Most communities have a farmer's market. You can meet with the farmers and ask them any questions you might have about how that food is grown. Number three, a little bit of a bandwagon here, ride your bicycle as much as you possibly can. Don't always get in your car to go everywhere. Take opportunities to find other ways to get places, especially if you're close by. If you live in town and you are close enough to the grocery store and different places that you need to go to on a regular basis, just leave that car parked for the whole summer for crying out loud. And if you live out in the country, still do the best that you can to drive that car less than you currently do. And the other part about this is that you're taking care of yourself. You're a part of creation. The book of James says that we're a part of creation. So take care of yourself while you're taking care of the planet. And a great way to do that is by riding your bike or walking to places that you don't need to drive to. And then the last one, and this 
arguably is the most important is just enjoy it. Enjoy all of creation. Go on walks in the woods. Stop and smell flowers. Sit and stare up at the sky from time to time. Do that thing where you try to figure out what clouds look like. Just take some time in your life to enjoy this amazing creation that is all around us. What good is taking care of it if we're not enjoying it? So friends, that's a little bit about how bad theology is ruining our planet. And I challenge you, and I challenge you deeply to take an approach that you will honor the divine by honoring the planet. And that is how I think we as believers in God, we as followers of Jesus can make a big difference and should be on the front lines of this conversation and this fight to right what is wrong with our planet. All right, friends, that is it for today, but I want to let you know about some great interviews we have coming up. Next week, one of my favorite pastors, a guy that I've been listening to for years and years and years, and he was actually recommended by one of you. A listener reached out and said, hey, have you ever thought about reaching out and having Bruxy Cavi on the show? And I was like, absolutely, I'm going to do that. So one of my absolute favorite pastors, thinkers, and speakers, Bruxy Cavi, is going to be on the show next week. He is the pastor of the Meeting House up in Canada. And then the week after that, oh my goodness, I'm super excited. Joshua Harris. Do you recognize that name? If you do, you've been around the evangelical church for a while because he wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye and now more recently has rescinded all of his thoughts that were included in that book. And that book was such a huge part of the toxic nature of purity culture. And he was so very kind to take this interview and to come on the show to talk about that book, the process of rethinking that book, and then also, and I would argue really importantly, what he's doing now. So Joshua Harris is in a couple of weeks. Of course, if you want to support this podcast, make sure that you subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. And until next time, keep walking.